thousands of African migrants assault Israeli policemen in a riot that took over South Tel Aviv. Should they stay or should they go? What people are saying. And dogs on Haredim. What is the deal with religious people? And are you terrified of dogs and wonder why? And it is Chodesh Elul, and that means we need to dig deep and do tshuva. I have Reb Adam here for some inspiration on this episode of the Weekly Squeeze. This is the Weekly Squeeze. I am your talented and lovely host, Hanala Music, coming at you from the land of Israel. This is episode 136. All right, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I have been reading up about the Eritreans, or Eritreans, however you pronounce it, in Tel Aviv for the last uh, little bit, because though I know they are there, I've been there and I've seen them. I've seen old Tel Aviv, where I once lived for a couple of months, actually, after I got married, um, completely taken over by these Africans who come from a country that is called the North Korea of Africa. And like North Korea, this is according to the Human Rights Watch website, they repress their population, There's they restrict freedom of expression, opinion, faith. It's basically a dictatorship. And um, people are not very happy there. There's no legislator. There's no independent civil society organizations, no media outlets, no independent judiciary. I mean, this country sounds like a nightmare, honestly. Mass roundups, forced labor, just abuse of its citizens. It's just a hellhole, which is exactly what Tel Aviv was over Shabbos. Because in Tel Aviv at the moment are thousands of Eritrean migrants that came through Egypt into Israel and are now living in Tel Aviv, squatting. They're essentially squatting in Israel while they wait to come back to their country. On the UNHCR website, the UN Refugee Agency website under Israel, there's a video here on YouTube of Kevadum Mengistu, where he gives his testimony as a Etrian accountant jailed at Israel's Hulot Detention Center. So he came from Eritrea to Israel along with 35,000 other migrants, African migrants, okay? Some of them asylum seekers and some of them in need of international protection. How they ended up in this tiny country, we're going to talk about soon. So then, now they're living in Israel without a status, without status, without basic rights. Well, they're not citizens because they're not even Jewish and they're migrants, illegal migrants, might I add. And on this video, you see this guy say straight up, we did not come here to look for work, to seek a comfortable life, or to receive Israeli citizenship. We came because of the evil that harmed us and in order to save our lives. We have been here for a while, and we will stay until we get our freedom. So they're squatting. They're basically staying here until things get better in their country. Um, In the meantime, however, they are obviously uh, still connected to their homeland, thinking that one day things are going to be better and different and they'll be able to go back home, which would be great. However, in the meantime, as you guys squat over here, can you not destroy Israel? Can you not destroy our neighborhoods? So over Shabbos, massive gangs of black Eritreans came out to the streets to violently fight it out, fight out their politics. One anti-government group, and one pro-government group. And they came out onto the streets and all hell broke loose. I have never seen, I'm sure by now you've seen some videos. If you don't have to see them, don't watch them. They are terrifying and extremely concerning. Dozens of Jewish, Israeli, 
police officers were hurt. Jewish, Druzy, Arab police officers were hurt. Hundreds of people were locked up in their homes, terrified that this would just get worse and worse. I mean, there are plenty of typical, standard, Jewish, not Jewish, citizens of Israel living in Tel Aviv. And suddenly, the, the place is out of control. They smash windows. They smash cars. They, there's a, there's, the videos are, are extremely alarming. And could you imagine what the Arabs are going to think when they see this? Could you imagine how they're laughing, thinking, oh, we, we finally cracked the code. All we have to do is bring out exactly this number of militants onto the street and we'll overcome the police. I mean, the, the horror that this is happening in Israel, we need this like a hole in the head. We need this like a lachen cup. I mean, I'm looking at a headline on the Times of Israel. Hospital chief says he can't recall a medical event on scale of Eritrean migrant clashes. That is terrifying. We live in Israel. I mean, this is like just a natural disaster. This is a natural disaster. Like a hurricane hits the country. You just have to deal with it. The migrants are here. The migrants are here. And now we all have to deal with the chaos and the the cost of it all and the impact that this is going to have on the the safety and security of, of Israeli citizens in such a tense time as it is. Unbelievable. I, I tell you, I don't even know what to make of this. I don't even know what to make of this. I, I mean, the chutzpah of people to be such a kfuya tova, I mean, to be so disrespectful, to be so ungrateful. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Ingrates. Unbelievable. I'm like watching these videos. I'm just astounded. They're on the streets of Tel Aviv. People are lying in pools of blood. It was, vi- I mean, this is the only, this is violence that happens in third world countries. And now it's on the streets of Tel Aviv. All of these guys are armed. They're all holding clubs. Dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of African men and women walking down the streets of Tel Aviv with weapons. And a lot of police got hurt. And it's just, I'm watching this video and it's just, they're, they're streaming down the streets of Tel Aviv. And my daughter asked me this week if she can go down to South Tel Aviv to Shukhar Carmel with her friends. I promise you. There was enough, it was still Chofesh. Can we go to Shukhar Carmel with my friends? I'm like weighing it. Like, I don't know. I, I've been to Shukhar Carmel. It's pretty, pretty safe there uh, for the most part. And, and here I'm watching thousands of men on the street. Rapists, by the way. The, the stats are all available. You can do a quick Google and see exactly what these men are doing and what they're capable of and the abuse that they afflict on women. I mean, this is a very, very, very dangerous and scary situation. And I am not pleased. As you can hear, I am not pleased. And I want to know how this happened. How did this happen? By the way, apparently this is good for the Supreme Court reform agenda of the right-wing political party that currently governs Israel because the only reason they were allowed to stay here as asylum seekers and illegal infiltrators is because of the courts. And the courts, as you know, are left-wing. And when you're left-wing, everything is about social justice. And what's more social justice than allowing them to stay in Israel? Because we're Jews. We, we love Hachnasus Archem. We would be more than happy to have tens of thousands of middle-aged African single men live in Tel Aviv, one of the most populated and beautiful cities of Israel. And, and now they're here to trash it and destroy it and to become criminals and rape women. I mean, so you cannot walk in South Tel Aviv at night. You cannot walk in South Tel Aviv at night. 
It is a no-go zone. It is extremely, extremely dangerous. And these are blocks and blocks and blocks. I've been there. I've been there with my husband. We went to pick up padding for a studio in some industrial center situation. And 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 I was like, I, I literally couldn't stop looking around. I was like, holy cow, who are these people? I don't feel like I'm in Israel. So if you want the politics of it, apparently this was one of the changes that Aaron Barak did in 1992 when he allowed the NGOs to petition the court to change ruling. So now NGOs petition the court and then the court will decide um, whether the government made the right call or not and whether the, the migrants can stay or not. And in this case, it was ruled that they can stay. Well, congratulations. We have our hands full. We do. We have our hands full. You know, let's change the subject real quick. Why the heck have I got 42 messages from Kita Gimel since I dropped my kids off at school? It's only 9.25 in the morning. Like, what do you want from my life? Why are you sending me so many messages? It doesn't stop. There's a mother typing now. Aren't you guys happy? Your kids are in school. They're happy. They're in school. They're safe. Everything is good. We'll see them at 1.30. Now, if you think I'm overreacting, well, these messages are all in Hebrew, okay? And these, there are a lot of groups. Kita Gimel Alofot. Then we have Kita Gimel in English. Kita Hevav Tafshin Peidalid. Kita Hevav. Why are there two? I don't know. All right, let me take a minute. Calm. <laughs> I am actually pretty calm, and I was very excited to start my routine today in a quiet house with no kids around. Not that my kids are noisy, but there's just something about the quiet that slowly settles over your home when your last child leaves for the day. It's just silence. And that's what I'm enjoying, and I feel really calm. Also because I'm taking Queen Tulsi. I'm telling you, I am telling you that it's working. I know my moods and my emotions. And I am taking Queen Tulsi four pills a day because I'm extra like that. And I am supercharged. So go get your Queen Tulsi. I ordered three bottles for my mother-in-law who told me she can't sleep because I am a quality daughter-in-law like that. And because she's amazing and deserves it. So my friend Hummy's back from Baltimore. She was gone for two weeks and it was just so quiet. My... <laughs> My bathroom windows face her backyard. She's two floors down from me, but she has three dogs. And over the course of the summer, she had other dogs around because she trains dogs. So it's, you know, it's vibrant. Let's put it that way. But she told me her kids were so excited to come back to Israel. And I was thrilled to hear it. Because you worry, you know, you take kids back to America, you take them to Chutzlaretz, they see things. And you assume that it might be shinier and prettier than Israel. And in the meantime, they just want to go home. And I totally get it. We have a gorgeous new park in our town. I got to tell you this. <laughs> Such a laugh. We have been waiting for months for the renovation of our city's park. We have been waiting for the renovation of this park day in and day out because all the kids in our neighborhood go to the same park. So what does the city do? They put up a barrier or a gate all around the park, an impenetrable gate, a metal white 10-foot tall gate, and the park is closed, and the kids have nowhere to go. They kind of just hang out in the park up the hill, which is much smaller, and there's just no place for the kids to play for months. Now, of course, this being Israel, kids have been playing in that park <laughs> the entire time. Like the second they installed something, they were, uh, there was a kid playing on top of it, and the second the slide went up, it was just a slide. You couldn't even get to the top of it, but there were kids playing on it. So the park is officially 
or unofficially done, let's put it that way, because the walls are still up, but everything has been installed in the park and the kids are plotting. Like the, the weather's beautiful. And what could be more fun than a new park? Especially one that you get in illegally. <laughs> the kids have been like, you know, crawling into the park. Friday night, the park was absolutely full. So I'm walking my dog. Um, this was before Kiddush. And I say, let me check out the park. I, I got to see this park. And I go into the park and my friend Tamima's there and she's with her dog and the dogs are playing a little bit. And then, <laughs> as it turns out, there is a lake in the park. They installed a stream right through the park. So there's all this new playground gear and there's a soccer field and brand new swings and a gorgeous tree house and a toddler area. And smack through the entire park is a, a river, essentially. There's like two ponds and then a stream and rocks and they even put little lights. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, the park is absolutely magnificent, but there's a stream in the park. I mean, can you think of a worse place to put a stream than in a park full of Israeli kids? I, I, I am astounded at, at the idiocy of this decision. Now, apparently this was done for technical reasons. There had to be some water running through the area and, and they couldn't work around it. Okay, no problem. Make a stream, but put planks over it. Make, make it a, a walkway, a pathway. This is Israel. Put plexiglass over it. Don't just leave it exposed. What's going to happen when it starts raining? What is going to happen when it gets filled with garbage? It's going to get filled with garbage. But anyway, back to my story. I'm in the park, and my friend Tamima's there with her golden retriever, and our dogs start playing. And then my dog leash, my dog's leash got caught on her dog's leash, so I took the leash off, and both dogs just ran for the hills. And my dog went right into the stream. She went right into the stream, and she peed in it in the middle of this brand-new park in this brand new stream. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but what do you mean? Who asked you to put a stream in the park? I was like, this is, this is too much. Anyway, I went back the next day and this time my dog was held firmly on a leash. But you should have seen what was going on there. There, there was one kid whose feet were in there. She was just splashing around and I'm thinking, oh my God, I hope this water's filtered. My dog literally peed in this stream last night. Other kids are putting planks in. They're making paper airplanes. They're throwing balls in. At some point, a ball came flying. The soccer ball came pl uh, flying from the soccer field. And the kid had to, like, crick into the water to take it out. And then I'm, like, looking around. And I'm not such a logistics person, but come on. The toddler area is right next to the stream. So there's a big toddler area with a gorgeous treehouse. And then these big wide steps. And the steps lead into the stream. Which means that if a mother is distracted... Her child, her toddler, could go right into the stream and drown. It's as deep as any bathtub, for sure. And it hasn't even rained yet. So you would think that, th that this would be obviously something that needs to be fixed. Well, guess what? It's not, because it's up to code, from what I understand. And I've been on the phone calling people... The truth is I haven't been on the phone. I just called one person <laughs> who knows the mayor. And I was like, what on earth? And I spoke to her for a while and she's like, we know we're going to try. We're going to fix it. We're going to, and everyone's just like, please, this is not going to be fixed. There's a park down the road that also has a stream and it's disgusting and nobody's fixing it. So yeah, that's the drama around the park. You could see why my, you know, I'm getting riled up, but physically I'm calm. <laughs> Intellectually, I'm triggered and annoyed and frustrated because I'm, I'm depending on other people to make good decisions so that I could relax. I'm at that stage in my life. I don't want to be busy with anything except letting my kids live. 
And I want my kids to live peacefully and safely wherever they are. And I don't want drama and I don't want trauma and I don't want anyone WhatsApping my phone 5,000 times. Another 48 messages. Why are you sending, they're sending pictures of the kids in a circle. Let me see. Oh, he looks so cute. But still, like, why do I have to think that my kids are outside now? I don't care where they are. I drop them off at school and they will find their way home. I even gave my son 20 shackle for a nice coffee. Okay, because we're bougie like that. This week's episode of The Weekly Squeeze has been brought to you by Caroline Bass Health. Welcome, queens, to Queen Tulsi, the herb that will make you feel good, sleep good, and be good because it calms you down. Yes, experience the all-natural daily stress relief supplement, a super herb mix that will help you feel less stressed. I'm taking it, and I've been less anxious and less moody, just feeling a little more zen. Mood swings, if you have trouble falling asleep, PMS, brain fog, or just feeling you know, stressed out, take a Queen Tulsi supplement on a quest to find the perfect combination of herbs for glowing skin and daily stress relief. Five herbs in perfect synergy. That's what Queen Tulsi is. We all deserve to feel a little better, look a little better, and do it naturally and kosherly. So head over to my show note links. CarolineBassHealth.com is where you'll order your first batch of Queen Tulsi supplements. And before you check out, put Queen Hanala in the promo code for your 20% off. Affordable, healthy, kosher, vegan, gluten-free, and designed for all the queens out there running the show. CarolineBassHealth.com. Promo code Queen Hanala. All right, back to the Eritreans, the chaos here in Israel, and the fallout politically and psychologically, uh, considering the intensity of the violence that took place here in Israel between two tribes, one that supports the Eritrean government and one that doesn't. So what's going to be? What's the plan? Well, it looks like they're going to get deported. Bibi said that they're going to deport everyone who was involved in the riots yesterday. Ben Gvir, tongue-in-cheek, I mean, or maybe he's serious, he's like, move them to North Tel Aviv. Just move them up to the fancy neighborhoods where all the leftist Tel Avivis that voted for this chaos are, assumingly, to make a point, but he was serious. He's like, can we pass legislation that limits their place of residence? Because <laughs> their point being, if this took place near the homes of specific people, maybe people who work in government or people who have a lot of money or people that do not drive down to South Tel Aviv, despite the fact that it's visited by tens of thousands of Israelis every single day, perhaps if they saw and they were affected by what went down, they would challenge the decision of the Supreme Court. But right now they're just detached from what's happening. They're living in a bubble. Obviously they're aware of it, but they don't have to do anything because they will not be in harm's way up in North Tel Aviv. So, you know, laugh, cry, that is from Israelis government official Ben Gvir. As far as what's going to be with these people, well, let's back up for a second. If you did not have access to Israeli press, to pro-Israel press, you would be under the impression that these people are riding against the Israeli government. And you would think that perhaps the Israelis are oppressing... (laughs) It's so ridiculous. It's not even... They're oppressing these six-foot-tall, black, African, middle-aged, unemployed men. 
that we have nothing to do with ourselves, but make it difficult for them. Meanwhile, half of these people are demonstrating for their government. I mean, how despotic do you have to be to be anything but sympathetic to Israel for what they have to deal with now? You have a guy like Kenneth Roth. This man is Jewish. So he says. And he tweets out that Bibi's basically a racist for wanting to deport these poor, vulnerable, helpless African migrants. Meanwhile, back in 2012, there was a report that Hamas was torturing 250 of these Eritreans in Egypt. And nobody blinked an eye. Did you hear about that? No, you didn't hear about that. But this is everywhere. And reporters are scrambling to figure out a way to present it as Israel's fault. All I can say is that the only one here at fault are the people who voted for a left-wing Supreme Court, the people who put politics before common sense. And that is why Israel needs a strong leader, a leader who will put their foot down and be like, this is not good for the safety of the Jewish people. This is not good for the safety of Israelis. Absolutely not. And you know what? I told this to my husband. Let him go out there wherever politicians speak on a world stage and tell the world, you know, we can't handle this. We are too small of a country. We have too much on our plate. These guys got to go. Who wants them? And whoever wants them could take them. If everybody's so uh, selfless and altruistic, you guys take them. We're not available now. Sorry, we're busy dealing with the uh, Iranian-funded uh, Palestinian terrorists that are murdering Jews every single day. We are busy protecting our country from the actual threat of being obliterated off the map by despotic countries, Arab countries, that, uh, yeah, are being funded by Americans and American politicians and dirty money that's being funneled through agencies that you support. So, yeah, don't give Israel any aids us on how we should handle things. This was a big, fat mistake. This was a huge mistake. I don't understand how this happened. How did they allow this to happen? And it's terrifying because you're telling me you're protecting my children from Arab terrorists? I believe that with my whole heart. I believe in the army with my whole heart. But to think that these people live a 40-minute drive from my house, not that they're going to come here, but I go there. We have family there. We go out to eat there. We walk around there. It's Tel Aviv. My husband grew up there. I lived there for a year after I got married. I wouldn't walk there now in the middle of the day. So the fact that Israel gave away essentially gave away a piece of land to these infiltrators is obscene. It's absolutely obscene. It's shameful, and it needs to be rectified ASAP. That is my take on the Eritreans, or the Eritreans, or whatever the heck they're called. Now, if you're a bleeding heart liberal and you are appalled, fear not, or worry not, Israel does a lot of things to help non-Jews in need. We have a long history. Uh, First of all, there's the Save a Child's Heart Uh, organization, and they perform heart surgeries for free in Israel for children all around the world. doesn't matter if you're from Gaza or Sudan or Ethiopia or Syria. We also have Innovation Africa. I'm sure you've seen videos where Israelis turn like air into water. Well, yeah, they also bring solar energy to the rural villages in seven African countries. Why is it so hard to say rural the rural, <laughs> uh, it's not easy to be a podcast host. Anyways, um, yes, 
Israel is extremely generous. Did you know? I did not know this. In February 2015, Gigawatt Global built Rwanda, the largest solar field in East Africa. Wow, that's pretty cool. That brings energy to a lot of people and saves a lot of lives and shows a whole lot of compassion. Mike O'Murray, the chief coordinating spokesman of the Nigerian National Information Center, stated, Israel has been a crucial and loyal ally in our fight against Boko Haram, a terrorist organization that kills tens of thousands of African men, women, and children every single year while the world just tick-tocks on by. Um, in the late 1960s, Israel was amongst the only nations that helped the Igbo of Nigeria. And I spoke about that with Rudy Rockman once upon a time. Rudy, if you're listening, call me. We should have you on the show again. Um, and Menachem Begin, well, he took in Vietnamese refugees when the world turned a blind eye to their plight. As he said in 1977, I saw him in the Golda movie. He was the guy who wore a patch on his eye. And he said, we have never forgotten the boat with 900 Jews, the St. Louis, having left Germany in the last weeks before the Second World War, traveling from harbor to harbor, from country to country, crying out for refuge, and they were refused. Therefore, it was natural to give these people a haven in the land of Israel. We know what it's like to be exported, deported, expelled, chased out, and treated horribly in the host countries where the Jews have been dispersed all throughout Gaulus. But think about it. Have you ever seen or known Jews to stand up against the government with violence or to behave in a way that's destructive to the, to the country that they're living in, to the cities, to the neighborhoods? I mean, Jews are the most polite and constructive and proactive and generous and grateful and enthusiastic citizens that countries around the world have. We're polite, we're clean. You don't see our kids spraying graffiti anywhere or throwing bottles or getting involved in the gangs or throwing a riot because, you know, the left Israelis that live in America and the right-wing Israelis that lived in America, they're going to brawl it out on 41st Street. There are people on respirators. There are cops that had to use live fire. The police in this country deal with terrorists day in and day out and rarely use live fire. So, yeah, this, this says a lot about them and us. And there's a difference between being a hero and being a martyr. We don't have to be martyrs. We are a country full of martyrs. Everywhere I go, there are monuments for fallen soldiers, monuments with their faces. I see pictures in stores. I see posters hanging in people's houses of martyrs, Jewish martyrs who were killed because they lived here in the land of Israel, in Judea. Jews in Judea murdered because people around the world decided that the land is not, maybe, couldn't be, possibly, we're not 100% sure, belongs to the Jews. And we're going to be pointed out as merciless for not allowing this kind of chaos to take over our streets? Heck to the no. All right, that is enough. <laughs> oh, all right, let's talk about dogs. Hebrew is an amazing language because the words so often reflect what the item or what the thing, the noun, actually is. For example, a horse is a sus, and a sus is from the source sus. <laughs> Say that five times fast. And that means happiness. There's a few words for happiness in Hebrew. Sus v'sameach. So a horse, well, its name reflects its character. 
a dog too. A dog is Kelev, Kulo Leif. And I want to share some thoughts on having a dog. And I'm going to tie this into a video clip that I shared on Instagram that, oh gosh, either you guys are completely unengaged, just scrolling by all the posts, or you're like getting into it with people you've never met on a video that you're not really sure what the backstory is. (laughs) Uh, So we'll get into that. But first, back to dogs uh, being all heart. I want to read something that one of you wrote in my weekly squeeze whatsapp group hang on i'm gonna open this up you know i don't have an assistant here like ben shapiro does feeding him scripts and commercials and all that i'm sitting here pulling it all together myself so someone wrote in the weekly squeeze whatsapp group that she's terrified of dogs she wrote i feel terrible i feel terrible for saying this i am terrified of dogs as is my husband and kids i don't know enough about dogs to realize the difference between attack and play My fight or flight instinct will kick in and I won't be able to pause to determine the difference as I run away. In a controlled environment, if I know the owner personally and I know enough about the dog, I can conquer my fear and pet their dog. But it's really going out of my comfort zone. I'm aware that it is hurtful to a dog owner as some of them view their dogs as children. That said, I don't care who owns a dog or walks it nicely right past me. I will just ask that you don't bring it into my home and I will not come into your home either unless you could put the dog into a different room. Now, the reason we're talking about dogs in the Weekly Squeeze WhatsApp chat is because I shared a video this week that I posted on Instagram. I got this video in one of my Israel Telegram groups where I get all my current events. So this video comes up in the feed. Obviously, there's no date. I don't know when it was taken. Um, I don't know who exactly shared it. But usually the stuff I get is rather current. So what I'm watching here is a video filmed in Yerushalayim. What you see is a group of Hasidim who are told us iron, zebras, as they're called affectionately here in Israel, wearing strimals and their shiny yellow coats with pinstripes and their white socks. And what you watch is a girl. And the girl is wearing a long dress, long sleeves, sandals. I don't know if she's wearing stockings or not. She's wearing sandals. Her hair is pulled back in a braid and she's walking a white dog. I freeze framed it here just so I can look in a little closer. There are cars driving. There are two cars and there is a photographer holding a professional camera taking pictures. And everyone around her is screaming on top of their lungs, shiksa, 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 shiksa. Now, they're not calling her shiksa because she's driving on Shabbos. They're not calling her shiksa because she's not dressed properly. They're calling her shiksa in all likelihood because she's walking a dog. What's bizarre about this video is that instead of the girl basically rushing through like, whoa, I didn't mean to walk around this corner, she reacts and she uses her dog to chase the people in the video, the chassidim. So here you see her walking towards a chassid who's running away from her. And her dog jumps up and bares his teeth in a sign of aggression. And she continues. She continues to walk parallel to him. And then you see a female police come into the scene. And the chassid is obviously saying, look what she's doing with her dog. And the female police is kind of caught between both of them. And then a kid shows up with Payas. I don't know why the heck he felt he needed to be in the scene. And the photographer is right behind him. And he comes into the scene and he makes a sivuv around her, and she comes up towards the wall and corners him with her dog. And he, like, freaks out and runs behind the other guy. And then the girl continues walking. 
Now, oh, before she actually walks away, she turns around and she gets into this entire group's face, yelling and screaming, and the policewoman basically pushes her away. This is one of the strangest videos I've ever seen. I'm not going to lie, because why are there photographers? Why? What is going on here? And this cannot be staged. This cannot be staged because these are not actors. These are actual Israelis, I can tell. I have seen Shtisel. These are not actors. These are people standing in the street. There's a kid on a bimba, and it's just clear that this is not a movie set. Someone commented, maybe it's staged. You can't stage something like this because Hasidim, Haredim in Israel are afraid of dogs. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. The overall general attitude that religious people, Jewish people, I would even go so far as to say from, from birth people have about dogs and dog owners. So let's get into it. I did not grow up with a dog and I totally understand what it means to be, yes, afraid of dogs. So I really understand both sides now as an official dog owner. So hopefully you'll be able to gain some clarity based on what I know now. And if you are a dog owner, understand a little bit more about what it means to not get what dogs are about. And that is perfectly okay. As a matter of fact, even recommended. All right. So what's the deal with Jews and their dogs? Well, there's an expression. As a yid hatahunt is other der hunt, kein huntnit, other der yid is kein yidnit. Sorry, Manta. It's <laughs> awful. But it means if a Jew has a dog, either the dog is no dog or the Jew is no Jew. What does that mean? What does it mean when a dog is a dog? A dog is born to accomplish a task. It is a working animal. I'm not talking about the little Pomeranian fluff balls. I'm talking about a regular dog. Now, dogs are remarkable creatures. First of all, their noses are absolutely remarkable. They smell everything. Everything in their life is about scent. They follow their nose everywhere before they hear, before they see. It's all about the scent. They process information that way. They know what time it is. They know what season it is. They know what dog passed by. They know where their humans are. They know where the food is. They know where the feather is. They know where they last went to the bathroom. Their, their nose is incredible. We do not use our noses except to eat too much. and <laughs> make a bracham besamim. So keeping that in mind, we understand why dogs are remarkable creatures when it comes to working for humans and facilitating the tasks that humans have to do when we need to rely on an animal that is quick, an animal that is strong, an animal that has incredibly powerful senses, and an animal that responds to its master, to its human, to its alpha, whatever you want to call it. The fact that an animal can interact with a human in such a deep, consistent way uh, um, it's remarkable. It really is remarkable. Every single time my dog looks into my eyes, I am startled by the fact that she sees me. And she sees me. And she smells me. And she follows me. And she waits for me when I leave the house. And she greets me with such exuberance and enthusiasm and joy and elation every time I walk through the door, even if it's just three minutes later because I went to throw the garbage out. She's thrilled to see me. And sure, it's because I feed her and I take care of her and I control her life, and I am all she knows. And I take her on walks, and I pet her, and 
you know, give her a good life. So sure, she'll be happy to see me, but it's not true. I know humans, some I might live with, some might, you might live with if you have teenagers who are completely ungrateful for everything that you do for them. And we do so much more for our kids than for our dogs. But Hashem made the dog pure heart. What does that mean? That means the dog is pure instinct. The dog is pure emotion. A dog doesn't have seichel. I always tell my kids, the dog has no seichel. She's not thinking it through. She's not thinking it out. She's not planning ahead. She's acting on instinct alone. That is why we train them out of certain behaviors and into certain behaviors. And that's why we use food because their noses are so powerful and dogs have stomachs that could literally process anything. Well, that's, uh, that, that, we'll talk about that in a minute. So you have this animal that lives in your house that absolutely adores you, that thrives on a schedule, that can be trained, that thrives when it's working and being productive, and it's just beautiful. I mean, it's agile, all different kinds of furs. It comes in every single size. Their ears are moving every single direction. They're, they're just hilarious animals in so many ways. So I know you're thinking, but I'm petrified of dogs. And that sounds amazing. Where are all these dogs that you speak of? Well, dogs, well, they can be broken. They literally can be broken. And unlike humans, they are extremely strong and have powerful jaws that can tear your throat out um, if they feel that they need to use aggression on the human that's threatening them. And when you have a dog that has fears, whether it's because they were in a home that they were abused, whether it's because they were abandoned, whether it's because they were kept in a cage for too long, whether it was because their owner used to kick them or throw things at them, whether it was because they were bred improperly and those anxieties were just bred right into them, that dog will use its inborn aggression that it uses to hunt food on the human it feels is threatening them. And that's when you get a dog that is barking and that is lunging and that is baring its teeth at both humans and other dogs. Yes, dogs are aggressive to humans and dogs are aggressive to other dogs. And that is why there are so many circumstances, unfortunately, where dogs hurt humans. It's impossible that they won't hurt them. They are much stronger than us. They are much quicker than us. They are much more powerful than us. We don't have to catch a rabbit and tear it to shreds in order to eat it, as a dog would have to do if it wanted to survive in the wild. Hashem gave it those innate capability so it can take care of itself. And that's it. That's the, the beauty of our creator, the way he created every single animal with the means to provide for themselves so they can survive and thrive and re reproduce and, and continue to live in the animal kingdom. Once upon a time, animals were not domesticated. They were out in the wild. And this brings me back to Jews and dogs because a story that I remember learning years ago, we learned in Chumash in Parsha Bo. One of the interesting stories that transpired when the Jews left Mitzrayim was that the dogs in Egypt remained silent during the plague of the death of the firstborn during Makos Bechoros. When Moshe told Paro about Makos Bechoros, he said, there's going to be such an outcry in Egypt that there never has been and there never will be such a outcry again. But against all the children of Israel, no dog shall sharpen his tongue uh, against neither man nor beast, so that you shall know that God has distinguished between Egypt and Israel. And our Chachamim tell us that as a reward for their not barking and their respect for the Israelites, Hashem said that dogs will be given treif meat that was left in the field. 
Now, we as Jews eat kosher, right? We are holy. We are set apart from other nations. And we don't do things. We are distinctly different from the Gaim in our behavior and our choices. We don't eat meat that was torn from an animal, even if it comes from a kosher animal, because we love Hashem. We are different than the norm. We don't walk around in Thailand and eat all these kinds of animals that they're barbecuing on the street there because we are devoted to Hashem and we are going to follow the mitzvahs. Therefore, Hashem decided to give the dogs treif meat as a reward so that we would be reminded of Hashem's love for us when we hold back and eat only food that is holy and separate from what the Gaim are eating. It's a deep thought. But the point of the matter is the dog teaches us simply by eating raw meat how special we are to Hashem because as Yidin, we refuse to do so even though the rest of the nations of the world do. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, well, then why doesn't everyone have a dog? Why don't I get a dog? And my answer to that is not everyone should get a dog. So don't get a dog unless you really want a dog and you are prepared and committed to raise it. It says in the Gemara in Shabbos Samach Gimel that anyone who raises an evil dog within his home prevents kindness from entering into his home since poor people will hesitate to enter his house. Fair enough. Rabbi Nachman Bar Yitzchak said, one who keeps an evil dog in his home even divests himself of fear of heaven. As it is stated at the end of that verse, an awe of the Almighty will leave. Uh, it continues, a pregnant woman who entered to use the oven in a certain house to bake, the dog in that house barked at her and her fetus was displaced. She had a miscarriage. The owner of the house said to her, do not be afraid because his teeth have been removed and his claws have been removed. She said to him, take your goodness and throw it to the thorns. Your encouragement is useless as the fetus has already been displaced and will certainly die. The warning against keeping bad dogs is echoed elsewhere in the Talmud. Rabbi Natan said, from where do we learn that a person should not raise a bad dog in his house and should not place a rickety ladder in his house? From the Tyre where it states, you shall not place blood in your house. But it's not just bad dogs. In Bava Kama, Rabbi Eliezer opined against all dogs, good and bad. He said, one who breeds dogs is like one who breeds pigs. However, however, before you start saying, aha, you see, dogs are bad. There were always dogs next to the Jewish people. There were sheep dogs, hunting dogs, guard dogs, and yes, even pet dogs. I'm talking about in the times of the second base of Migdash. And this was based on a study from Joshua Schwartz, Barilan University. He wrote a whole thesis called Dogs in Jewish Society in the Second Temple Period and the Times of Mishnah and Talmud. Um, he writes, however, it's improbable that dogs in Jewish society were the objects of the same degree of affection as they received in the Greco-Roman world or in the Persian world. Um, there's also a Talmud Yerushalmi, Masechtas Trumas, Perkhes, Daf, Mem, Vav, Tor, Aleph. A certain person invited a sage to his home, and the householder sat his dog next to him. The sage asked him, how did I merit this insult? The householder responded, my master, I'm repaying him for his kindness, the dog. Kidnappers came to the town. One of them came and wanted to take my wife, and the dog bit his testicles. <laughs> but today we're talking about dogs and Jewish people in the last hundred years. So why are so many from Jews afraid of dogs? Um, 
especially because today's dogs are not dangerous animals. Most of us have Maltese's and King George Cavaliers and these little doodles, labradoodles, golden doodles, and just the, you know, the cutest, fluffiest, sweetest looking things. They're actually sweeter than they look sometimes. They're actually, I'm sorry, <laughs> they're actually not as sweet as they look. Now, my mother grew up in Crown Heights, and when she would see a dog, which was rarely, she would cross the street. She was actually terrified, as were all the from Chabad people, Lubavitch people in Crown Heights, um, because they had never been exposed to dogs. There were no dogs in the shtetl, I can assure you. And until today, most religious homes do not have pets, or many religious homes do not have pets. It's changing, but I would say the majority of from houses do not have pets, for sure not dogs. Why? First of all, because families that have a lot of kids, they don't need dogs. There is so much going on. There are so many responsibilities. It's just as it is. You know, in America, you have two and a half kids and a dog or one and a half kids and a dog or just a dog. And the dog becomes your entire focus. So when you have a lot of kids and your priorities are raising them to be B'nai Torah or Tavir Shemaim and just be good, decent people, then there's no, there's really no time to throw a dog into the mix. Another issue is animals on Shabbos. There is an Indian that dogs are mukta on Shabbos. Other dogs are mukta on Shabbos. And I tell kids all the time when I'm walking the dog on Shabbos, it's mukta for you to pet my dog on Shabbos. It's mukta to touch any animal on Shabbos. You're not allowed to milk a cow on Shabbos. And dogs don't need you to touch them. You essentially could refrain from touching them over Shabbos. I mean, there is leniency that a dog is meant to be pet. So just like if you prepare a rock on Shabbos, for to be able to be used on Shabbos, then the rock is no longer muktzah since that particular rock will have utility for you on Shabbos. So the same thing goes for pets, that they have this utility on Shabbos to be pet because that's what they're for. Obviously, this includes a seeing eye dog and any other dog that functions t- to help a human being. Um, but for someone else to just pet your dog, uh, play with your dog, I, I mean, essentially, it- it's you have to ask your rabbi what the halacha is regarding that. So that's something to consider. But what about the fear? Why are people petrified of dogs? And this is from Chabad.org's website. So don't come at me for being inappropriate. Listen to this. Both dogs and rabbis are loved by those who know them and instill fear into those who don't. But that's where the similarity ends. Both fears are very different. The fear of dogs comes from the fear of being bitten. The fear of rabbis comes from the fear of being inspired. Ha ha. But yes, people are afraid of being bitten, and that's absolutely something that you can train into a dog, as the Jews saw in the Holocaust. I mean, the accounts, are some of them are too horrible to read here, but there were pit bulls, there were German shepherds, there were violent, starving, even St. Bernard's, who were used, Hitler's dogs, uh, built to be tools of his design, used to kill the Jewish people, to bite them, to scare them, to hunt them, to torture them, and to do the dirty work of the Nazis, who are like, well, why do we have to dirty our hands with a Jew if a German Shepherd or a Doberman could do the work? And if you read any Holocaust books, you know, I'm sure you've come across stories where these dogs who were trained into becoming ruthless assassins, they were killers. They would bark in the most terrifying way. So yes, dogs can be extremely vicious especially if they're starved. But it wasn't personal. They didn't kill the Jews because they were Jewish. They killed the Jews because they were trained to attack, and that's what they did. And this is exactly what the Gemara is talking about, the Talmud's talking about. Um, a dog can cause a woman to miscarry. A dog can 
be incredibly violent and dangerous. And that's why there are muzzles. That's why there are shelters. That's why dogs are put to sleep. But there's an old adage that says there are no bad dogs, only bad dog owners. And I truly believe that. And yes, it could be a little more complicated. Like I said, you can buy a dog on Craigslist that was bred in a puppy mill. For, for the dog stores that you see in the malls or PetSmart, if you see a dog in a cage in, Bet, in PetSmart, you are not to buy that dog. Those dogs, unfortunately, are bred in puppy mills by sick people who keep dogs in cages their entire lives. I'm not talking about those dogs. I'm talking about normal, healthy, well-adjusted, trained and loved dogs. And yes, when you love your dog, you train your dog. You teach your dog not to bark at people. You teach your dog not to lunge at people. When I walk with my dog, she's only a puppy. She's six months. She's very friendly. I make sure that she doesn't rush up to people. I keep her on a short leash next to my knee because I understand that other people don't want a dog in their space. If they're walking to shoal in the morning and they're saying brachas on the way, they don't want a dog in their face. If they're afraid of dogs, they don't want a dog in their face. If they're just not in the mood, if they're just... You know, why should my dog be in someone else's space? So if you can't walk your dog without having your dog lunge at people, then you have no business taking that dog out unless you have a trainer working with you. It's a big responsibility to have a dog and it has to be done right. And when it's not done right, there are terrible consequences. There are terrible repercussions for dog owners who don't train their dogs properly or if they choose not to train them, take them out into public. If you want a dog that's tearing up your house, that's between you and your dog. Just don't bring it out and let it hurt or terrify other people. So back to this video of this girl walking with his dog. Now, what, what bothered me about this video? First of all, I completely identified with this girl because I walk in Israel with a big dog, dressed in long dresses and sandals, on a Friday night. I do. I take my dog out at 7 o'clock, and I live a stone's throw from a Haredi neighborhood that would do exactly what they did in this video to me if I were to walk through their neighborhood with my dog because A, they're terrified, which is fine. I get why they're terrified. Dogs are unpredictable, especially when you don't know them or anything about them. I, I get the fear. However, a little seichel. Let's apply a little seichel here. There are hundreds of people in Beit Shemesh that have dogs, hundreds. On my block alone, there must be 50 dogs. I kid you not, I could probably name half of them. From people, Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kosher, learning, going to Minyan, covering their hair, sending their kids to from school. They're just from regular Jews. And people have big dogs and small dogs and one dogs and two dogs. And old people have dogs and young people have dogs. It's totally normal and acceptable here. And most kids in my neighborhood are not, are not afraid of dogs. But in a neighborhood where people are afraid of dogs, a little sechel. Why couldn't there be a little sechel applied here? And I know you're thinking, yeah, the girl shouldn't have walked through. No. I'm talking about the men in this case who were terrified of dogs and were calling her a shiksa for walking a dog. They weren't calling her a shiksa for not being tzniyas because she was tzniyas. They weren't calling her a shiksa because she was driving a job. It's because she was walking. They were calling her a shiksa because she was walking a dog. And they are terrified of dogs and dogs are bad and dogs are, uh, are tame, I guess. I guess is that, or, or dangerous. But that's not true. Dogs are not tame. They're not dangerous. And you are allowed to walk them on jobs. And just because this community is terrified of dogs does not give them the right to call this woman a shiksa, a Gentile for walking a dog. It might not be something they did in the shtetl. It might not be something they do in Mea Sha'arim. But this is a free country. And everyone pays taxes here. And every single person is entitled to walk where they want, 
however they want as long as they are not breaking the law or publicly offending another community with their values. And a dog, while it might not be something you're comfortable with, is not against halacha. Owning a dog is not against halacha, as we just discussed. Owning a bad dog is a problem, but there is no asr in owning a dog. As a matter of fact, some say that the Rebetzin, Rebetzin Chayamushka, had some sort of relationship with a dog that used to either walk her or protect her or sit outside her door because she was a librarian and she used to walk in Brooklyn, maybe after dark. But again, even if they're terrified of dogs, a little seichel. Do you really think that I am living with an animal that might kill me? I'm not walking a lion. I'm not walking a feral fox. I'm walking a trained dog and I'm holding it on a leash. And I can't think of one circumstance in this entire city where a dog bit a Haredi kid. And if Chas Vashalm that ever happened, I could assure you it's because the Haredi kid got into that dog space. Dogs don't randomly attack people. Like I said, there are no bad dogs. There are bad dog owners. So if a bad dog owner lets a dog off a leash or a dog runs out the house, that's something else. But a dog that's being walked on a leash by a responsible adult is not going to attack someone. And as you see in this video, the dog doesn't attack. He lunges forward in an act of protection towards his obviously agitated owner, but he never bites. And that's actually pretty amazing considering the the setting here where a bunch of men are yelling and chanting and perhaps throwing things at this woman who's just walking and doing the same thing she does every single day. So it would be a natural reaction from the dog. The dog doesn't bite and um, just kind of lunges forward in this motion, like, back up, you know, you're in my owner's space. Now, as far as she goes, should she have been walking through that neighborhood? Okay, a little seichel would go a long way in that, re- in that respect too. I-, I wouldn't walk through that neighborhood. But what happens when I walk through the Merkaz? or when I walk through the park, or when I walk at six o'clock in the morning, and I promise you it was not my imagination. I'm telling you, it was not my imagination. I was debating, should I say it? Should I not say people are going to think I'm making it up? I was walking my dog this morning at 6.30. I walk her through the Merkaz, up the steps, maybe six, seven flights, all the way up to the top of HMS, and then I go through the park. And this morning I was crossing one of the little streets between the staircases, and in Israel, the uh, pedestrian has the right of way in crosswalks. The car has to stop. And a Hasidish man was in a car and he zoomed past me so aggressively through the crosswalk where I was walking that I, I, I literally yelled out. I said, Maitcha, maze. I couldn't come up with anything else. But I was like, what on earth? And I remember thinking, I'm dressed modestly. My hair is covered and I'm minding my own business. Why, why did I just feel such an animosity from that individual? It was so bizarre. And I promise you, I am usually out to lunch. I miss all these things. My husband's like, did you see that? I don't see anything. But I'm telling you that this individual was trying to send me a message like, yuck, you're walking a dog. And I've heard it from other people too. What's my point? My point is that everything has to be examined when you are from Jew. And there's no reason that we shouldn't be talking about this. So if you live in a neighborhood and you have a dog and you feel like the firm community treats you with disdain because of your choice, well, that is not okay. That is not a Havasus role. That is wrong. There has to be a little more education and there has to be a little more seichel. If you are terrified of dogs, as the girl in my uh, WhatsApp chat so eloquently expressed, that is something that has to be overcome. You don't just not be afraid of dogs. And it will be overcome when you meet enough dogs who are being raised properly and are trained and 
and behave. And a lot of dogs, unfortunately, are aggressive. Many dogs are aggressive. There are thousands and thousands of dog trainers all around America making a killing trying to figure out why dogs are so anxious. It's because people leave them at home for too many hours. It's because people don't take the time to train them and exercise them because people buy breeds just because they're cute or for the holidays or because their kid wanted them. And then those dogs are not raised properly and those dogs cause problems, many of them ending up in shelters and killed. Anyways, this is me telling you it's 100% okay to not be a dog person, to be afraid of dogs, to not want a dog in your space, to not want to not want to go into a home with a dog. That is fine. But like the girl in my WhatsApp group so eloquently expressed, know the reasons why you're afraid and don't use them as a weapon to yell at another person, another Jew for owning a dog because you think a dog is tame. It's not it's Muktzah Shabbos, is fine, but because you think a dog is bad, because you think a dog is wrong, and you think owning a dog, it, it makes you a shiksa. David Amalek had a dog. He did. He was a shepherd. He had a dog. Did he walk his dog through the Merkaz? No. Did he train his dog to herd his sheep? Likely so. Even though my husband says he didn't need a dog, he did it himself. He was strong like an ox. Whatever. I like saying David Amalek had a dog. I guess when Mashiach comes, we'll know. One thing's for sure. The IDF has dogs and many handlers who use the dogs to hunt down terrorists, to protect the borders, um, as search and rescue dogs. They were used to find bodies in the earthquakes in Turkey and in Haiti. Um, they're used to detonate booby traps. Whenever explosives are suspected, we don't send in our children. We send in uh, a dog. There is a unit of dogs permanently stationed at checkpoints in the West Bank. And these animals are used to sniff out potential bombs. So when you see a German Shepherd with an IDF soldier and you're thinking, oh my God, that dog must be so vicious. No, quite the opposite. That is a dog that gets a ton of attention. The IDF gives their dogs the best training, the best food, the best health care. I read an article where one of the soldiers says, the dogs get better treatment than we do. <laughs> Um, they have beautiful kennels. And this is because without them, the army couldn't accomplish all the things that it does. And when a dog dies here in Israel um, or falls in the line of duty, it's a big deal. And they actually make a small memorial service, something symbolic. And then the soldier who lost his dog gets a new dog. So dogs are definitely special animals if you get to know one, if you have one, if you spend time with one. But if you don't, that's cool too. There's no mitzvah that you have to have one. Focus on your children. Focus on your life. Focus on being dog-free, poop-free, pee-free, <laughs> and everything that comes with being a responsible dog owner. All right. My guest today is Rep. Adam Yitzchak, who I discovered on Instagram. He is one of those reasons that Instagram still exists. You know when Avram told Hashem, if there's even 10 tzaddikim in Sadaim and Amara, can you not destroy it? If there's even five, well, Instagram's the same way. There are a handful of people who are keeping it holy, and for that reason, it still exists. And one of those people are Reb Adam Yitzchak. He is a Ashlag Chassid. His Rav, Rabbi Gottlieb, inspired him to turn on the light from within by using Chassidus and Kabbalah to connect. And I thought this time of year it would be beautiful to speak with people who kachen Taira, who live Taira, who get up early, told me he gets up at Nate's, to spend time with Hashem, and I loved that, and I was not disappointed talking to him. I was disappointed that I forgot to press record until 15 minutes into our conversation. So in a very quick, small nutshell, because honestly, it was disappointing. He's just a great orator, and 
there's nothing like hearing someone tell their own story. The way he was giving it over, I was like so into it. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm not recording. <laughs> what should I do? But he was a gentleman about it. And I'll tell you quickly that he grew up with Russian parents. He was always very deep and introspective. He, he knew that he wanted to be a therapist or people used to tell him rather that you should be a therapist when you grow up and you're a great listener and you just get things. And he always had what some might call a deep soul, an old soul. Though there was a time when he decided he didn't believe in God anymore. And he told his dad. His dad said, do you believe in God? And he said, no, I don't. He was a young teenager. And instead of his father getting angry, his father told him, well, I'm pleased. He said, you're pleased? How could you be pleased? He said, well, that just shows me that you have given it some thoughts. That's more than a lot of other people can say. They just, you know, can't be bothered. But you were bothered. And you went and you looked and you read and you searched here and there. And you've determined that there's no God. But don't worry. The same way you've determined that there's no God, I know that one day you'll determine that there is. And then you'll know for sure that ain't owed Milvado. And that is basically what Reb Adam's life is like. So without wasting any more of your time, Reb Adam Yitzchak Polonovsky. Reb Adam, welcome to the Weekly Squeeze. Great to have you. You are a rabbi living here in Israel, living an inspired life. So I'm glad that you're here to share with us a little bit about what you do as a consciousness alignment coach. It's Erev Rosh Hashanah. Are you nervous? Are you in the zone? Are we going to have a good year? <laughs> Give us the good word. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, there is only goodness, as difficult and as chaotic as it may seem. As we are taught, ain't od milvado, there is only him. Now, it's one thing to think that in the mind. It's another thing to say that with our mouth. It's another thing to actually attempt to do imuna as opposed to having it and experience that. That's a job, and that's a hard job. I'd also just like to preface for a moment in full vulnerability. Reb is a colloquial term that means sir. I'm not an ordained rabbi, but I've been told by someone that when people start calling you Rebbe, you are a rabbi. And a lot of people call me Rebbe, just for reference. All right. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take it at face value <laughs> yes. for this show for sure. All right. So I had some time to go down your Instagram page and there's so many inspirational thoughts, but I really wanted to combine it in something a little more streamlined. For that person listening who's completely overwhelmed, Arav Rosh Hashanah with tshuva, because it's very intense and you have so many different ways to do it. And sometimes it seems so easy and sometimes it seems so hard. So how can we become a little more consciously aligned and aware and present in our lives through prayer and meditation and learning and just living purposefully, helping others and all that, um, so that we can come into the high holidays with hope and with the appropriate amount of fear and enthusiasm and positivity? That's a great question. And I think it's so important for us to consider how we can be accountable with each other and for each other and try to open up that conversation between friends and family to actually you know, maybe have a level of vulnerability and hold each other to this very auspicious time in the ability to become aligned, the ability to return to that greatest self, that greatest appreciation connection to Hashem and to create that space for a person internally, practically, as you say, with prayer, with meditation, with learning and the like, one step at a time. I think for us to be compassionate on ourselves wherever we're holding 
to be able to step forward with a heart and with a head and with a soul that we want to connect and we have to gauge what works best for us in the moment, slowly but surely step into that greatness. And that's something I'd like to speak about as far as this notion of inner greatness and how it relates to Elo and Shuba. Can you just tell us a little bit about the Hasidus that you study and the philosophy that sure. you live by for my audience so that we can kind of dig our teeth into the concepts that you're going to be presenting? Absolutely. So I am in a community that is called Ashlag Hasidut. Ashlag comes from Rabbi Yehuda Leib Halevi Ashlag of blessed memory, the Bal Hasulam. He's a grand commentator on the Zohar, wrote the commentate, uh, the commentary on the Zohar called the Sulam, as well as a grand commentary on the Arizal, the Chaim, called Talmud Esrasford, literally a Talmud, 16 volumes on the Arizal in perfect exacting measure. So we are quite involved in a very directed way in the inner dimensions of Torah in Kabbalah. It's very much what we're about and spreading it and speaking about the importance of integrating that into our day-to-day lives as well as into the education systems, which is a totally separate conversation that I'm happy to get into. So I'm coming from the place that the Torah itself, aside from being a story of our people, more practically perhaps can be said as a model of consciousness, as describing to us modes of how we can go from our egoism into our altruism, to go from our self-service to serving the other one step at a time. And that starts with also that healthy relationship with self. question is, what is the self? What is the true self? What is the true self-worth? It depends who you ask. (laughs) It really depends who you ask. And in today's day and age, um, I've heard it all. So it's important to remind people who we are, where we come from, what we believe in, and the headspace, the soul space that we need to be in in order for all of our, in general, for for, for all of our uh, emotional health, for everything that we are mm-hmm. to click and to fall into a place where we feel good and we can function well and we love ourselves and we love Hashem and everything is just flowing. Yes. Well said. All right. So let's speak about specifics because I have a morning routine that's 48 steps at this point and I don't think I can add anything else to it. So how can I become consciously aligned without actually having to do much? <laughs> Give me the long and short of it. I know that we have to be aware. I know that we have to know that everything is Hashem, but how do we actually do that on a day-to-day basis? What is your frame of mind when you start off your mornings? I've heard from Rav Daniel Kass, who I highly recommend. is a wonderful project called the Elevation Project that I've been a part of for some time. So I very much resonate with the notion that we must start our morning with soul and source, as opposed to jumping out of bed and opening up social media. As an example, I'm kind of locking in. Why are you looking at me that way? I would never. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could see me also posting like at 3.20 in the morning when I wake up, because I wake up quite early for learning. It is a conscious choice. It's a conscious choice not to go on your phone first thing. Certainly. So I think tapping in to that light, that goodness, that place of reflection, as opposed to anything but, like as opposed to plugging into the self, where am I, where is Hashem, where, where it is my day, and what do I want to start it, and where do I want to go, and just being lost in the sauce, so to speak, just getting caught in the echo chamber. So to make that decision, I think even before going to bed, as many say that really the routine starts before we go to sleep, and making that set intention 
going to sleep with a desire, with an inspiration, knowing that we're going to wake up in the same mode and the same energy, and getting up with that inspiration to tap into what's most important, first and foremost, so that we can set ourselves up for success. Right. So making a chajman nefesh. So you can wake up like a lion, knowing that you did the work the night before and that you are ready to tackle tackle the day. So for some people, that involves 45 steps, like for me. Sure. For some people, that means just not picking up your phone and then immediately you're more centered because you're like, oh, what a beautiful day. It's going to be fresh and, and breezy. I could take my dog for a walk. That's good for my emotional health. Right away, your mazel opens. You're not just limiting it to what's in front of you on the screen. Now, I know a lot of people have different natures and personalities and serve Hashem differently and, and need different kinds of inspiration. So what are some ways that we could connect in Chodesh Elul to the right things so that we are, like we're talking about, aligned? Whether it's learning, how much learning Torah should we be doing? What should we be learning? You know, how do we make our days more purposeful? How, how much chesed should we be committing to in today's day and age in this world where everybody needs our help? You know, charity starts at home. There's just so much to tackle. So tell us a little bit about what you think is the right balance for living a life where you're focusing inward and outward. Great question. I think to your point, yes, chesed starts at home first and foremost. And home, by it, in the Zohar, being one of the many code words for both in the Shema and an individual level, as well as a collective level, being the Shechina, I think it's important to also start at literally home. Because if I'm coming from that place of also healthy self-care, then surely I can give that out to family and then start branching out there from friends and community, so on and so forth. I think it's so individual for every person. Every person is such a unique soul and coming from such a particular place. So to contemplate, where have I been purely receiving for myself? Where can I take a step forward into being more giving and therefore more godlike? And to make that cheshbon, to make that accounting of what is practical for that individual, because I would argue that that is the essence of tshuva, the essence of repentance, returning, realignment, is we're born with this egoistic nature. And so we surely through the tournaments, what we're trying to get to, altruism. As it says in Masechet Shabbat, just as he is compassionate, so too you must be. We're trying to equate our form, a similarity of form per se, with the Creator. Just as he is all loving and giving, so too we must be. And I think... But he's also perfect, and it's really hard for us humans to be perfect because we're very not perfect. Yes. And that is glaring us in the mirror every single morning. That's where the struggle lies. That's a wonderful point. And that reminds me of something I've heard from one of my close teachers and mentors who is a practicing Jewish psychologist. He's been practicing for five years. Actually, took a Chabad program four years full time. That's a powerful com combination, science, psychology, and the Torah. <laughs> like, you know everything. Yes, 100%. So he's challenged that, especially in Elul, the king being in the field, right? As the Balatanya says, so, okay, so Hashem is more here. It's easier to connect. It's easier to pray. I can feel some type of energy. Okay, wow, so easy, so much easier, perhaps, relative to other times of the year. He also says there's a practical positive psychology aspect in that we are the kings of our personal field. You can call it the field of energy. You can say that we reap what we sow, my thoughts, speech, actions, behavior, so on and so forth. I'm in control of that too, to a degree. I want to do my best to be more in control of that and choose good, be able to plant something that's going to be fruitful. With that said, 
we have a greater opportunity to tap into, bear with me, our inner perfection during this month. And to acknowledge that even with my misalignments, my sins, however you want to call them throughout the year, yes, there's a place of taking responsibility. There's a place of saying sorry. There's a place of saying thank you for keeping me alive and trying to get to that realignment and do as best as we can. And on top of that, just to have the cherry on top, even with all those things that I've done, behind the veil, I'm still unconditionally valuable, purely good, and eternal. Those are these three archetypal pillars of our highest root essence. Right. Our value that never changes. Correct. Despite what we go through. So again, Our intrinsic value. Correct. So acknowledging that intrinsic value and noting that Hashem still loves us infinitely and unconditionally, despite what we've done, in itself is an aspect of tshuva. Because it's connecting to our innermost goodness based on the principle that we're kind of like a shift off the old block, per se. And that we're a a portion of him. So just as he is unconditionally valuable, perfect, and good, so too we at our core are as well. And that's a job. It's hard to tap into. What I find so fascinating is how the Avaida itself, all of it, all 613 mitzvahs, everything that we need to do, it all purifies us and brings us closer and helps us do tshuva and it all is interconnected. It's not like the focus is tshuva, we have to just focus on our abs this month. No, <laughs> when you just, <laughs> when you live a Torah life and you do the actual mitzvos, they refine you and they help your neshama mm -hmm. reveal itself and reveal its, its elokus. And it's just marvelous how the Torah is so perfect. 100%. And you see it when you're, when you're kaching in it. And now is the time to kach in it. Now is the time to be completely like my, you know, you say in Yiddish, Iber Gegeben of I am a Jew and it is time to show some accountability for my behavior the last month. Yes. Because we all have the tools. We all have access to the internet, access to Torah study. We all live in overall free countries where we can go to Shul and go to Mikvah and do the Jewish commandments without limits and without barriers. And there really is no excuse. There are plenty of resources for help and for support and for medication. We are living in a time when the Torah is free and readily available and cheaper than drugs. So nobody has an excuse not to live a Torah life. But for some reason, we schlep our feet the whole year. And then Chodesh El comes rolling around and everybody's in a panic. So let's, let's speak about, um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to shift from one thing to the next. Because I know we can get stuck on a concept for hours. Sure. So I just want to kind of Go hit the it. list. One of the things that people are truly busy with, I, I like to call it a hot topic, a hot button topic, is gratitude. You know, for years, people were focused on forgiveness. The key to happiness in life is forgiveness. And then the key to happiness in life is self-love. And now the key to happiness in life is gratitude. So in a modern world, if you don't have a gratitude journal, you're so not with the program. So let's speak a little bit about the spiritual definition of gratitude and how being thankful or Better yet, how connecting with Hashem makes you automatically more grateful. So first question is how to define gratitude. What is gratitude when you're a Jew that's connected to Hashem, truly connected to Hashem? And how can we use it in our avoda and how it can help us? Where do you find gratitude when it comes with your, to your relationship with Hashem? I find gratitude to be an overarching, constant opportunity to connect based on the principle that is bought, brought in the Sechad Brachot, that we should thank Hashem for the good and the bad equally. 
and that only goodness comes from him, as King David says in Tehillim 23, in Mizmah David, Ach tov only kindness pursued me, pursued to kill. His own son, his beloved kin, trying to take the throne, pursuing to kill him, and he acknowledges it as Hashem's kindness pushing him to come closer. So seeing that every single matter in our life is an opportunity to turn and to create that channel, to create that scene or that connection. So to be gra- gracious, to be grateful for both the good and the bad, the bad in particular is something that expands the vessel, Bala Sulam says, to be great, grateful for the bad and grateful for the past, and it's something in itself that is doing emuna, as opposed to having emuna, because it's something that goes against the ego, against logic, against ration, against reason, to experience, you know, stubbing your toe and saying like, Baruch Hashem! Stubbing I- your toe. I'm thinking about serious d- dramas and traumas that people have in their lives and how they're probably listening and thinking, you don't know pain. If you knew pain, you would not be grateful for this. How do we find true gratitude and amuna in those darkest hours when we're just racked with physical, emotional, spiritual pain? It's a great question. I think time is a wonderful healer and that Hashem put us in time and space as a a natural mechanism for us to align. And sometimes that's what it takes on top of the accountability, the circle, the positive, whether that's the mental health advocate or the coach or the rabbi or the hopefully positive family member, so on and so forth. Something, I think, simple and practical and Yes, to be sensitive to that could be the very thing that people are going through. And that could be a great issue that people are going through. For reference, my rabbi is on National Israeli News every week, multiple channels. Rabbi Gottlieb? Yes. And, you know, he, he brings up some of these dark and difficult moments and instances that people are experiencing, you know, even with He's hardcore, by the way, for people listening. If you look him up, there's more than what meets the eye. He's a holy guy and he's the real deal. Yes, appreciate that. I've had the great merit of being a full-time student of his for three years and being a, a shamash of his. So it's really amazing to see him in action and in person and also to have the, the guts you know, to speak about these, these tough topics. To the point of doing a moon versus having a moon, it's a process and it can be a long one. And I've heard from Rav Katz, for example, that a moon is not something that we have. It's something and a place that we're going to. So just to appreciate, you know, and I have this iPhone. I bought this iPhone. This is in my ownership. I've acquired it. I can't say I have a moon of the same way. Some days it's 5%. Some days it's 10%. Some days it's zero. Maybe on Shabbos it's 50. Rosh Hashanah is 80. But that doesn't mean I, that you suddenly don't believe in Hashem. That could yeah. mean uh, on a regular Tuesday, you're questioning something that a few days ago you completely understood to be Litova. And suddenly you're angry about it and you don't understand why Hashem's doing this to you. Right. Yes. And I think it's important to sit with those emotions and to be okay with them and to also nurture them and to kind of shower compassion on them, if I may say. And that's an aspect of the doing a moon in that it's something that is above reason, logic. And that's why it's a, it's a job. It's so, so tough. And I can only imagine where some people are coming from and what they're experiencing, what they're feeling. And I can do my best to put them put myself in their shoes. And I've had my dark moments in life. There was a time where I was suicidal as well, just for reference. And uh, I, I know 
what the darkness looks like and tastes like. And I think that environment, all things considered, is the most important thing we can do in terms of alignment. Rabbi Boch Shalom Ashlag, the Rebbe Zetzal says that that is the essence of a person's free will. Because the Torah and the mitzvot and the goodness that we can experience in life is dependent on our environment. A person's on a stranded island, there's only so many Torah and mitzvot that he can do. So it is in a person's best interest to again and again plant themselves in the greatest soil based on the principle that man is like a tree of the field so that they can grow and flourish and receive that proper sunlight, receive that proper rainwater, so on and so forth. And sometimes that changed me drastic. Give it time and also some level of discipline because what I'm hearing is make a choice that maybe you don't want to do right now, but in the long run will put you in a space where you can thrive. And I am very predisposed to do that. It's something I've done since I'm a little kid. I mm-hmm. make commitments and then I panic like, oh gosh, do I really want to be doing this? And then I do it and I'm living my best life. And that's why I made Aliyah because I lived in Florida and everything was perfect and I had a swimming pool and you know that was perfect. So let, why not move to Israel and have an adventure? And that's what I did. And we've grown so much and I've grown so much and it's been wonderful. So Great. I'm hearing, yeah, so I'm hearing keep moving. Don't be stagnant. Make those decisions. Take that plunge. Try that and look at the big picture because the days pass and before we know it, the circumstances change and we're free from whatever was hindering us so many months before and choking us and drowning us, keeping us down. I'm with you. 100%. Gotta take the plunge. Yeah, Gotta break through like parrots. But it's so hard to do all the introspection. I've been struggling with journaling forever and I even had someone on the podcast talk about how journaling saved her life and continues to save lives. I'm like, I'm going to do it about the notebook. I sat down, I wrote a couple words the first day. And then I was like, what do I need this for? I know what I think. I know what I feel, but you know what? I'm not okay. And I speak to interesting people twice a week. And I do a lot of reading and learning and growing. And I have a lot of even physical pain that I think is interconnected with my emotional issues. And why do I have emotional issues? I don't know. I'm blessed to have a lot of great things going on, but there's a lot of turmoil inside mm-hmm. when you're, I guess, not aligned with your maker. So I know that I'm not aligned with my maker because if I was, I'd be treating myself better. I'd be taking ca- better care of myself. I'd be eating better. But at the same time, I am trying. You know, I got a dog and now I walk two hours a day and I do some hispitidus in the park and I <laughs> connect great. and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Amazing. But it feels like an everyday struggle. It is a struggle. You seem very happy and peaceful. (laughs) You don't look like you're struggling at all. (laughs) Surely I have my own struggles. And there's a different level of alignment at every level. And I'm in no way saying I'm on a high one by any means. I'm right there with everyone else. I'm holding the hand sometimes with my own clients on an equal level, just saying that, okay, I learned a tiny bit more. Maybe I have some perspective that I can relay, but we're pretty much all on the same playing field relative to where we can be, and that's okay. Right. You just got to keep trying. 100%. It's all about the effort. We're not obligated to finish the job, but we're not up, but we can't stop. So how do we stay motivated? I know you have, obviously, Rebbe Gottlieb, and he's inspiring you, but a lot of people don't have that kind of, whether you want to call it leadership or mentorship, and they have to find the source for their inspiration for what they need for their neshama. So in a world where there's so much going on and so much to learn and so many different ways to serve Hashem, what do you recommend people gravitate to in order to keep that fire burning day to day? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And 
the greatest thing that one can do in regards to being inspired and actually touching and flickering and inspiring the soul itself is learning about it to discover who am i what am i to sit with and meditate on this notion of who we are and what our purpose is which is in essence chasidus and it's kabbalah this is a big conversation in regards to the need to balance let's say the education system both on an individual level and also on a collective level and to have these ideas this exposure to be able to know that there's always more than meets the eye life is such a beautiful journey with so many gems under even the darkness and we have the conscious ability to tap in unlock and peel back those layers to taste the sweet fruits within the inner dimensions of the torah is the ultimate place of inspiration at least for me and something that i think is consistent with uh, my experience my clients and so many so many so many people thank god that i've come across in terms of really hitting the deepest part of the soul. Um, let's focus on a few more things just so we can give everybody a little more meat and potatoes before I let you go. Sure. As far as Kabbalah goes, as far as Hasidus goes, you know, we have to be inspired from the inside out. There's just no other way to do it. There's so much tedium in the religious life that I think that's what frightens away so many people. The structure, the discipline, the rules. So when we live a life where we understand why we're here and the nature of God, and we feel and see the spirituality that surrounds us and the deep levels of godliness and everything, that makes it easier to live as a Torah Jew. And I think that's what people don't understand. They think that you have to first be a good Jew, and then you'll also learn Kabbalah and learn Hasidus and be inspired. But it's quite the opposite. The Bala Sulam goes as far as to say that like Kabbalah is kind of in the way first step. As opposed to being the dessert wine, it should be the ABCs of the Torah. In that but it it's is, not. It's not. And that's a great challenge in this generation, I would argue. And it's uh, you know, a trickle-down, top-down challenge and opportunity. And I think it's difficult to even open up that conversation as far as my rabbi has experienced. There is you know, great resistance to that and just throwing it out the window. And we can only do our best at a grassroots to make some moves. Is that what motivates you to share what you're sharing on social media? The reaction that you're getting from people who feel suddenly like you're speaking to a part of them that hasn't been spoken to in a long time or ever? Yes. And I get that feedback almost daily. People reaching out to me and saying that things just resonate, things click. Thank you so much for sharing the depth. And I feel very blessed to be a part of that process of revealing and sharing just the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg of what's available in the infinite depth of the Torah. Wow. Tell me a little bit about Mitzvah Mom. She intrigued me. I was thinking of having you bring her on, but then I said, you know what? I'll give each of them their spotlight. Yes. But tell me a little bit about your wife and your family life and what it's like for you here in Eretz Yisrael. Yes. My wife is amazing. She is certainly my better half. I would not be where I am without her. She's been an amazing support through and through. We've had an amazing time. We've been married to Baruch Hashem for about three years now. We made and Aliyah together shortly after getting married. She went to MRC for reference. I went to Or Sameach. We're all familiar with Rechel Achaya is her seminary. So, you know, it was an interesting transition to go from yeshiva and seminary to a Hasidic community, albeit Telstone is a very Anglo place. So there's a nice balance of those energies. Are, are you near the Elvis gas station? 
Yeah. Yeah, I once rolled into there and I was like, why didn't anyone tell me this was here? This is super cool. And my husband's like, they're Arabs. Get out of there. It's not kosher. You don't belong in there. <laughs> you don't belong in there. I'm like, but for Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I don't know how the food is either. I never heard. I think all those things were true. Yeah. Yeah. But Telstone's on, on the hills of Yerushalayim. Correct. It's a beautiful place. I personally enjoyed being from the Chicago suburbs myself. It's a very suburban feel. It's quiet. Despite being right next to the Kvishachad, Highway 1. That's good. It's done as well. We're happy to be here. Beautiful. I'm glad that you are living the dream. Send her my regards. And uh, keep doing keep doing your holy work in the Holy Land together. Thank you. And what can I say? At the end of the day, nothing that is worthwhile comes easy. So unless you are really harving, you're really putting in the schwitz, you're not necessarily going to see results and another year will pass and you'll continue to hate yourself. <laughs> so yes. roll up your sleeves and dig deep and connect and it will bring you joy because to me, you you look very joyful. Do, does Tyra and Judaism bring you pure joy on, on a regular basis? It does. It really does. And I think the main thing for me, just experientially, moment to moment, is the exposure the learning and the integration of the inner dimension to be able to, yes, see the inner lights and the sweetness of what Judaism and what Torah has to offer is the most inspiring, enlivening thing, period. And, right, and you realize what a fake world we live in. Yes, certainly. The, the contrast is so strongly created and I think is empowering to the Torah individual that connects to the lights. I think the Torah, especially through the inner dimension, for lack of better words, is plugging out of the matrix, just connecting to source, connecting to Hashem, and seeing the falsehood that is anything but. Yeah, Lahavdal Aleph Avdalas, I was just talking this morning on the episode that I put out today about Adam Sandler's new Netflix bat mitzvah movie, which you probably didn't hear about. No. But in any case, yeah, in any case, <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's horrifying. And they have a reform rabbi who's teaching the Jewish Hebrew school that Adam Sandler's daughter who's becoming bat mitzvah goes to and she's sitting on the desk i mean first the children ask her why was there a holocaust why do babies die why is the world such a dark place why do animals suffer and she just starts having the kids chant god is random god is random god is random and all the kids wow. are chanting that and i'm watching it and i'm like no he's not he could not be anything f that could not be further more from the truth. He could yes. not be anything less than random. That reminds me of a thought if I could share. Yes, please. The Bala Share Sulam's, all the thoughts. <laughs> sure. The Bala Sulam often uses the word Seder, order, synonymously with Sod, secret. Because you could argue that the order of processes of any one thing is its secret the secret of the body so to speak like what's going behind the skin like all the processes and their trillions of infinite all the cells all the nerves everything going on so too especially how kabbalah describes an exacting measure step after step steps within steps great seder great order in perfect measure and i think a poetic thing that at least i've given over to clients as well that's been empowering is when we make seder when we do our best attempt to make order in our lives, that in itself is an alignment and an equating of our form with Hashem. And therefore, because of the synonymous nature of Seder and Sod, when we make Seder, the secret is revealed. And what's the secret of any one thing? Hashem himself. He's behind it all. 
Right. And when you're with Hashem in that dimension, you are completely free. And that's where the joy comes in because joy is unlimited. And Seder is structure and rules and you mm-hmm. know cohesiveness and everything in, in the right time. But as a result, we become like God and then we're unlimited and free. So that's really the true freedom, not the freedom to make a $50,000 reform bat mitzvah and call yourself a Jew. <laughs> that's not it. <laughs> Yes, 100%. All right. Well, I wish you a good gebenchjar to you and yours. Yeah, keep teaching the people what they need to hear, nourishing souls. And I'll put your Instagram handle in the show notes so people can reach out to you themselves. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, if they want to connect, I'll see you in the Holy Land at some point. So there you have it. Episode 136 of the Weekly Squeeze. Don't forget to head over to my show notes to order your Queen Tulsi and get 20% off using the promo code Queen Hanala at checkout. Please leave me a five-star rating, review the show, share it with your friends, and I will be back to share with you. See you on Thursday.